Hello and welcome to Miss Bossy Boots. My name is Stacey Morgan and I'm not joined by my fabulous co-host Jane Hilsden today. I'm joined by one of my other fabulous friends and I love saying that because I've known this girl for many, many, many years. We won't say exactly how many. Welcome to Miss Bossy Boots, the gorgeous Samantha Wills. Thank you so much. What a treat to be here. I'm so thrilled that you are making time to join us. Of course, you are a very busy lady. Anyone who follows Samantha on Instagram will see that she is jotting all around the place, even in these COVID times. So thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. You and I had a conversation on International Women's Day here in Port Macquarie at the International Women's Day breakfast, and it was so fabulous that I asked you if we could recreate it for the podcast, because I know that there were 400 people in the room on that day. But I hope that through sharing your story on the podcast, many more people will get to listen to it. So for those of you who don't know the Samantha and Stacey story, would you like to tell them? So then it's, <laughs> then it's not just me bragging about how you're Sorry. my fabulous friend. <laughs> no, oh, I love our meeting. So, I mean, I'm not, this wasn't where we met, but this is where we spent a lot of time together. Um, it was in Fantasy Glades, which um, if anyone is listening probably knows when if you spent Anytime in Port Macquarie in the 80s or 90s, you'll know what Fantasy Glades is. Um, it's a, I describe it as a poor man's Disneyland is how I describe it, but it's a theme park that was kind of built over time. And Stacey was Snow White and I was Cinderella, which still to this day is without a doubt one of my favourite jobs I have ever had. Me so, too. So, yeah, we would, we would like... I mean, the, the mosquitoes, it was it was sold as four acres of enchanted rainforest, but it was, you know, built on a, a marsh swamp land. Yeah. Um, there was mosquitoes the size of pigeons. There was leeches. It ticks. Was, it was a, Remember checking each other for ticks? Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that was a fun time. <laughs> it was a good time. But, look, don't get me wrong, I loved it. Um, you had the proper initials. You were Stacey White at the time, mm-hmm. which is Snow White. Yep. I've claimed SW now. So, um, yeah, we're very intertwined, aren't we? We definitely are. And those days, you know, I think we – it was one of our first jobs. I also worked at the news agency, which wasn't anywhere near as glamorous as working at Fantasy Glades. But it was like our school holiday job. So you and I went to different schools, but in the school holidays we would reconnect and ride in the back of the funny car and drive around town and wave to our fans. Like it was yeah. the beginning of both of our building, – building our empires. <laughs> It was. And the funny card, just for reference, was like a mini moke with like a giant troll doll on an electronic robotic head. Like Mm -hmm. it is so creepy when I think back at it, but it was just so much fun. So creepy. Uh, Many people talk to me now about how they wish that they had somewhere like Fantasy Glades to take their children. And I I do wish that I had that. And I'm lucky that I've been able to take my kids to Disneyland, which was pretty special. And now I think that if they had the comparison between going to Disneyland, which we didn't as kids, of course, there's no, we weren't going no. to Disneyland. You, but, and you can't take them to Disneyland and be like, by the way, kids, here's Fantasy Glade, <laughs> to work. Like you've blown it now, Stacey. <laughs> completely, completely. Some of the structures for Fantasy Glade still exist. And um, so, so Cinderella's castle is still there. Snow White's cottage is still there. And I had the the pleasure of going back on kind of like a, a, a tour. SBS were doing a, a documentary and I got to go behind the scenes and see how it had all kind of fallen apart and it was it was really creepy it was a long way from the beautiful memories that i have with you riding the riding in the car and riding on the train and um those were really formative years that we spent you know sitting in the back of that car discussing boyfriends and yep. growing up and all we of like that stuff 15, 16 14 at the time like quite young but um you know it was it was a lot of fun and i i think we should get 
a GoFundMe going so that we can all kind of get the Fantasy Glades back up and running. Wouldn't that be something special? I think you should take it over, Stace, actually, oh, now that I think about it. I was about to say that to you. It's like, come on, we've got some profile. Off we go. Come on now. <laughs> all right. Well, we might chat anyway, about your book. Yeah. <laughs> we might chat yeah. about your book and then, you know, see how we, how we can tackle the GoFundMe after that. <laughs> but, of course, you did grow up in Port Macquarie and one thing I have loved about watching um, you and you building your empire and your business growth and, and your growth as, as a woman has been that you have never forgotten your roots and that upbringing in Port Macquarie, you have referenced several times, you know, not just in the book, but, you know, when you, you've been interviewed and all of the incredible things that you've done, even when you were living in New York, you were still a Port Macquarie girl at heart. Talk to us about those parts of your youth, you know, more than just sitting in the back of the funny car with me, that really shaped you and the business that you built and the success that you've had. Well, I think that, you know, branding as it comes down to it at the very core of it is about community. And I think that community is, it's not taught when you grow up in a small town when you grow up in in regional or rural areas it's instilled in your dna it's entirely what the you know your community runs off the basis of community um so i think taking that from port macquarie um through every element of my career has definitely been that the anchor point for it um you know uh, we finished school i finished school in 1999 and i often say you know it makes me sound like I'm about 3,000 years old because it was a time before the internet. Like, yes. It's weird to think that, that, you know, the internet was obviously around, there was dial-up, but it um, it was very much a case of, you know, living in Port Macquarie to, to go to, I think we went to Art Express, which was like this big art exhibition thing for high school kids in uh, Newcastle. And to us that was going to the big smoke and, you know, you get this kind of view outside of this, you know, small you know, community life. And so I think it's very much like we didn't have the internet to see what was kind of out there for us. So we only kind of knew what we saw. And, you know, what I saw was blue collar, hardworking people. And that was, that was the community. So I really, all those values have been instilled in me throughout my entire career. Um, By the time I was 20, I, I, you know, I didn't go to university. I barely finished high school, Um, stayed in Port Macquarie and, and was working, got a job at you know, Proud's the Jewelers. I think I was 18 or 19 when I got that job and finished there when I was 20. And that really, unbeknownst to me, but solidified, um, it was like a year's education of learning all about fine jewellery and and all these things um, that I would go on to use later in my career when I left Port. But yeah, it was it's very instilled in me, everything that I learned in growing up in a, a small town community. Of course, by the time we were 18, we had been fired from Fantasy Glades or we should, we had moved on from Fantasy Glades. We and, been, and, yeah, we had and younger been. princesses had uh, had replaced us. <laughs> but I used to call into Prouds and see you whenever I was in Port because that's where you yeah. were and that's where you could be found and you were right. you were living this very glamorous life of um, selling jewellery compared to my dance teaching that I was doing. <laughs> I Depends which way you look at it. I think yours sounds much more glamorous. <laughs> But it's it's lovely that that you know those experiences that you had have really gone on to serve you. And sometimes I think in life, no matter what stage of life we're at, we have experiences that we think, "What well, this feels like going backwards. This doesn't feel like something okay. that's going to. What am I going to do with this?" But it turns out later on, it was you know we were in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Yeah, and it is it is that like wherever you are, it can feel stagnant, but it's kind of like. 
bringing your awareness, I think, to what is presenting. Like you might not even be able to see it at the time, but, you know, what you're onboarding, the lessons, the the education, all these things are, are going to serve you down the track. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't work it out for the longest time. And even in living in New York, um, I was over there pretty much for the last decade of um in New York. And, you know, you've heard this story before, but I was actually in an Uber with my uh, friend Freya, who is also Australian. She grew up on the North Shore of Sydney. And, you know, we were chatting away in the back of an Uber and the Uber driver looks in the vision mirror and he's like, you know, wh- where are you girls from? And he's got these really thick kind of, you know, Queens Bronx accent. So where are you girls from? And um, we're like, oh, Australia. And he's like, oh, no, but whereabouts? And, you know, I just said Sydney, assuming he wasn't going to know where Port Macquarie was. Yeah. And, and he's like, no, he's like, you guys are from, you must be from very different areas. And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, well, what, what does that mean? What do you mean? And he's like, oh, well, you know, and he looked at Fran, he's like, your accent. And he kind of, you know, raised his hand above his head. He's like, your accent's up here. And then he looked at me and he's like, yours is more. And he kind of like, you know, <laughs> down near me, he's like, more down here. And what he was saying is, you know, my accent, I said, well, you know, I'm from a, a small coastal town. He's like, that's it. It's a small town accent. And I never really realized it before, but um, so many people, you know, once I was aware of it, picked up on, on it. And um, it, it became something that I thought I was a bit, I had to change it in a way. And then I was like, no, really own it and own, own where you've come from. And I think, you know, in my case, in branding, it was such a key point, even in our brand story of, you know, learning to make jewelry. It, it was craft discounts at the time when Coles used to be where Officeworks is now. So yeah. <laughs> things that kind of um, instilled in me and and these tools I onboarded it's it's so pivotal and um, sometimes it doesn't feel like it at the time yeah definitely and then of course once you had left Port Macquarie you moved to Sydney really to the big smoke you know even bigger than Newcastle and you were so brave and (laughs) the the work that you did down there in in terms of creating your own brand and creating your own products and and building from scratch essentially on your on your kitchen table and there's some great photos in the book when everybody gets a copy of the book which you have to get a copy of the book it's fabulous of golden dust by Samantha Wills there's great photos of you you know really doing doing the hard yards doing all of the work yourself so many people now say to you how does it feel Samantha to be you know to become an overnight success mm. talk to us about those really early days and how you know the notion of overnight success is is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, well, I think, you know, anyone who's got a startup business or specifically anyone who's a solopreneur, you know, we wear all these hats because we have to. You know, you're you're the designer and the marketer and the accounts receivable and the cleaner and, and all these things. And it can just get so wildly overwhelming um, in one way, but then it's also we just are on this autopilot where it's like we, we just got to get it done because we don't have another option kind of thing. So yeah. it's it's um, both ends of edges of the sword. And I think that um, it's a lot. And it's, and I think in the book, I wanted to share that story so that, you know, I really wrote a lot of that book for 21 year old me sitting at my dining table to be like, Hey, you're not alone in this. I want, I want, you know, a a solopreneur who's thinks they're fully alone in this journey because it can feel so isolating to read that and be like, Oh no, someone else has, has experienced this as well because it's um it can feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. You know, I had gotten myself into eighty thousand debt, eighty thousand dollars debt three years in, and I was twenty four at the time, and I just didn't, I didn't know. I knew how to build a brand, but I did not know how to run a business at that time. And I think that's you know the more that I share these stories, the more common I'm seeing that that trend is that you oh, know, as creative 
right? Like we follow our heart and we yep. give everything we've got. And you're like, oh, but wait, there needs to be a business structure that's a very black and white, you know, financial structure behind this. And I don't mean a lot of money, but I mean transparency on, you know, what cash flow is, on what the PL is, on all these things. And um, so, you know, the meeting of, of those two took me a long time to put those two pieces together. I did. Oh, it's so common. It, mm-hmm. And I love that you've said it because I talk to business owners every single day who started their business because they had a passion for something, not because they had a passion for buying the toilet paper or being the person that fixes the roof when the roof comes in. Or, But when you run your own business, the buck stops with you and everything comes to you. You have to make all the decisions and that's really exhausting, especially when all you want to do is create. Talk to me yeah. about your creative process in those early days because you weren't thinking about the business side of things. You were just getting stuck into creating jewellery and even, you know, how that has kind of evolved now in, in creating the book itself, your creative outlet has, has turned mm-hmm. it into writing. Talk to us about how your creative process works. Yeah, well, I think, you know, as an untrained designer, I just, in one for one element of it, I was I always held that as uh, it was holding me back. I was like, oh, if I had have got the diploma, if I had have got this elusive bit of paper that, to tell me that I could go and be a designer. And I held on to that for so long for some reason. It was like this permission slip I thought I needed. Um, so I kind of would move that to the side when I could. And then, you know, it, in the better part of it, not having any training allowed me to design as big as I wanted to as um, without any type of ceiling on it. So if anyone knows Samantha Will's Jewelry from the early 2000s, it's statement earrings. It's more is more is more. I look back and I, you know, my very, very close friends in those days who God bless them would wear um, my jewelry daily. I'm like, I know who they are because their earlobes are so stretched. <laughs> <laughs> the weight out of earrings back then. I was like, I just want it to be big. And they're like, okay. So, you know, they're walking around with these five kilo earrings on. Um, So, you know, there was no rhyme or reason. I just, I loved the freedom to create whatever I wanted and didn't have to work to a brief of, you know, and that's in the very early days, you know, fast forward 13, 15 years in, by the end of the 15 years, I designed 12,000 pieces of jewelry. And it, it was very much this commercial machine um you know and that's what I wanted it to be I don't say that in a in a bad way but when you uh uh wash that against creativity um I was still the only designer I had a design assistant but then you look at the headcount in our warehouse we probably had about 30 people in our warehouse our accounts team was eight people our so the the actual smallest facet of Smith Wills Jewelry was the creative section so it turned it had turned into which most businesses are is a logistical operation right so um, so, you know, I was designing then to Matrix. It was like, all right, well, David Jones need five pairs of earrings at retail for $99. They need 10. Like, and you're designing this really strategic matrix, which still has creativity in it, obviously, but it's it's a lot more structured. Um, and then I think now when I look at creativity, it's um, I think for so long throughout that time, jewellery was my hobby and I turned it into my career. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I never replaced the hobby. So I think, you know, and which is what I wanted to be doing at the time. But I look back now and I'm like, oh, I just, there was no time I was creating in 15 years that didn't require a commercial outcome. Wow. And so now I think, you know, happiness to me now is being able to sit down with as ridiculous as it seems like a paint by numbers, or it's to sit down and create something that doesn't have to be designed to a price point and a COGS and a, a PL and all these things. And yeah. I look at, 
the space that we take up in our mind with, be it social media, be it our concerns, be it our fears, be it imposter syndrome, be it all these things that weigh on us. And then there's all these ideas and inspiration flying around above us, but we just don't give it any space to land. Mm -hmm. So uh, the creative process to me now is finding where those new ideas reach me. For me, it's either in the shower or driving on a freeway. (laughs) So I actually schedule in creative time. If I'm working on a project where I need creative problem solving or I need inspiration, I'm like, go for a drive on the freeway. You don't have to go anywhere, but just go and allow your mind to be active, but not have to be thinking. Yes. Um, you know, something that it knows how to do without having to really, really strategically think about it. And ideas just reach me. And that's my creative, as unromantic as that sounds, that's my creative process is showering or driving on the freeway. <laughs> but you've able, you, you know that now. And that's not yeah. something, you know, that comes with experience and, and really being able to st- understand that and also to have the flexibility to be able to go for a drive to let that creativity come oh, in. Yeah. I'm sure in the very, the busiest days of the business, you would have loved the luxury of going for a two-hour drive, but you had work to do and that just couldn't well, happen. I think it's, it's so hard because I think, and I, I don't say this because I know at the time I, I wouldn't have been able to do it, but I think as creative entrepreneurs, if we if creativity is our lifeblood, if those new ideas, if that creative problem solving, that is the most valuable currency we bring to our businesses or whichever, if, if you're a creative to any business, but we get so caught in the traditional mindset of I need to get that email out, I need to get that spreadsheet done, I need to do, which, yes, they are all, you know, elements of, of a working business. But if, if our job is to bring new ideas, we should be structuring. This is what I wish I had done in the early days. I wish I had a structured a bookkeeper and kind of these, these contract roles that I could have afforded, you know, at the time, not employing mm-hmm. people, and, and allowed myself that full creativity and scheduled time in for that because I was like, that's the value. That's the yes. value I add. 100%. I add in a bloody spreadsheet. Like <laughs> I'm hindering it. If I'm in the spreadsheet, I'm hindering the business. <laughs> but that's, uh, are you listening business owners? Because that is something that is a story that we tell ourselves all the time that it must be us doing the spreadsheet and it must be us refilling the toilet paper because it's our business. And if we don't, it will seem like we don't care or it'll right. seem... We need to find those areas of our business, whether it be something creative or whether you have a, whether spreadsheets is your, you know, mm-hmm. your moment to shine, finding those and being able to delegate the rest of it to somebody else and investing. I know so many people in their own business don't want to spend money because mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to make money. But spending that money, investing in that bookkeeper, investing in that person to do your marketing, really making sure that you are in your zone of genius wherever possible so that you can do your very best work to grow the business is so smart. And I've been, I feel like I've been saying that for a while, but now that Samantha Wills has said it, everybody, and take notes, please, because that's exactly right. I do think there is so much, and it's hard, right, because it is such a framework that is instilled in us. It's not really, I don't even think it's a decision we make, to be honest. I think it's instilled in us that if we're not doing the menial tasks, we're probably wasting money. Like Mm -hmm. I know my parents still to this day are like, well, just do it yourself. You Mm -hmm. you know, it saves money. Mm -hmm. Which there will, don't get me wrong, there are some areas where we are going to have to pull up our socks and get that done. But hand on my heart, if for the first three years, if I had had a bookkeeper without without question, who could have given me transparency, I don't think I would have got myself into $80,000 debt. Like I was a hindrance to that process. So surrounding yourself with people who are good at the things you are not mm-hmm. is an investment in your business. And I think too, that's that spending mentality where it's like, if I spend money, I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm not saving money kind of thing. In a business, you, you really need to weigh up. You know, we don't put a price on our time in those early days. So if you're spending three days a week doing the accounts because and someone else could do it for one day, mm-hmm. that's, that's wasting money. That yep. is wasting money for you to do it. And the other point that backs onto that is you, if you spend enough time doing those tasks that aren't in your zone of genius, you're going to start to resent the business and then you're not going to have longevity. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the hard bit. It's your baby, you want it to grow, but if you get stuck doing the things that you don't want to do, then everybody's yeah. wasting their time. Absolutely. Now, you touched earlier on imposter syndrome and it it's it's it comes in and out of the book. It kind of snakes in and snakes out, as I'm sure it did snake in and snake out of your career and and the building of the business. But you say even with commercial success we had achieved over the years, imposter syndrome was never too far away. Being self-taught, I doubted myself hugely as a designer because I didn't have the graduate diploma or official qualifications. The importance I gave to that elusive piece of paper was such a ridiculous illusion. It was as though the permission I thought I needed were written on it. Sometimes the permission we can't give ourselves is delivered to us in other ways. There are so many small business owners listening and people who also work for other people. If they're looking for that permission... Um, whether it comes from a piece of paper or it comes from, you know, ask asking other people for it, it's hard not to listen to that imposter syndrome all the time. What advice do you have for women who are listening, who want to get grow bigger, who want to take big risks, who want to do more? Perhaps they want to start their own business or follow that dream or start delegating things to other people, but their imposter syndrome is is tapping them on the shoulder. What advice do you have for them from your learnings? Well, I think with the permission slip, firstly, the more that we try and find that externally, be it through a bit of paper, be it through friends, family, media, whatever it is, we'll always, it's never enough, right? We'll get what we need and then we're like, well, I need some more. Mm-hmm. So I think um, that's a very exhausting journey. We all, we all do it and it's instilled in us. So I think we have to find a way to, because if you believe you're good press, you've got to believe you're bad press in whatever element that is. So um, in this day and age, that's, you know, you've got to believe your good comments on Instagram as well as your bad ones. And that's a very precarious way to operate. So I'm like, cut all that validation stream off mm-hmm. and it's all within. I know that sounds very spiritual and, and you know, disposable kind of comment, but it's so true. Um, and I think when it comes to imposter syndrome, you know, I actually, like you, you just read a passage. I think it's, it's lovely to have it in your voice too. As I said, the book oh, it's, it's such a fabulous book. I, I would read it all day. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so um, imposter syndrome actually has its own character in the book. It, I've actually personified it because it is such a huge part of my life and my existence. Um, and for so long, I think I tried to beat it. And I was like, I just need to get rid of this. this is such a hindrance. I need to get rid of it. Mm. And that obviously requires a lot of energy um, and a lot of focus. And the more I gave to it, the, the louder it kind of became, to be honest. And I think the further I've gone down my career and, you know, t- two decades in now, um, I think it's as loud as, as it's ever been. I'd, so in my opinion, I don't know if it's ever if it ever goes away. So what I've tried to do is be like, all right, imposter syndrome, like I see you, I hear you, give me 10 minutes. Give me 10 minutes to do this interview with Stacey and then we can talk again after that. And it's it's finding a way to live alongside it and there'll be times where it speaks a lot louder and for a lot longer, but that's up to us, you know, as the adult. I'm 39 years old and sometimes I'm just like, I'm just going to wait for an adult to tell me what to do. And I'm like, no, 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 you're the adult. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> so in this instance, I'm like, you're the adult in this conversation. So I was like, all right, stop the conversation. And all we need, and I talk about 900 seconds. I run an online workshop called Creative Space. And it's like, all you need is 900 seconds to start the task. If you don't like it after 900 seconds, you can walk away. Um, but if you do like it, stay in it and honor at that process. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, imposter syndrome, give me 900 seconds. And then you, you just start. And in my experience, imposter syndrome usually pipes down then. And you, it's just that, that starting that's, he, he just wants to hold you from starting it. But once yes. you're in it and doing it, the voice is not as loud. It's that starting, you know, little window. So finding a way to quieten the voice to just start is like, without a doubt the best advice I can give anyone about imposter syndrome yeah that really resonated with me that just start and and Mm -hmm. it only wants to stop you from starting how many things do we put off starting because we hear that that rhetoric in our minds telling us that we're not good enough and that we shouldn't try and other people have done it before and right and it becomes quicksand quicksand it's like we're standing in it and it gets thicker and harder and it, it doesn't just apply to that task and it starts to seep out into other areas of our lives. And, mm. you know, the more that we sit in that kind of procrastination and conversation with imposter syndrome, we're just so afraid to show up imperfect, mm. which means we're never going to try something new. We're never going to take that step. So, yeah, if you can just, if you can get 900 seconds where he just quiets his voice and you you start, you'll be surprised at just the beautiful things that open up. We talk a lot in our house about trying new things and, mm-hmm. We talk about it with the kids and then the the payoff is we actually have to do it as well as adults <laughs> so, that we're, so that we're role modelling it. And so right. there are a few things that I'm trying this year that I'm being very vocal with the kids about, you know, this is new for mummy and mummy's trying this and mummy's pretty right. scared and I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. And um, it's nice to know that it's not that's not just me that has the, you know, those fears and, and, oh. and that in the back of my mind. And I – in reading that especially because I've known you for so long and I've seen your incredible success I guess there was a part of me and a part of my imposter syndrome that was saying to me no I mean Samantha wouldn't have imposter syndrome Stace I'm just sitting here telling you you can't do anything Mm -hmm. and so I there was an expectation from from me that you um were flying high and weren't weren't struggling with any imposter syndrome. So it was um, beautiful and raw, as so many parts of the books are of the book is, in in being able to talk us through that imposter syndrome journey. We do think that, don't we? Like we like we always assume that someone else is so much better, and where the like, and that's another part of imposter syndrome where it's just like, no, no one really. Reality is, no one else gives a shit about what you're doing. It's everyone's worried about themselves and what that people will think of them. So I think that's another thing to remember. Absolutely. I'm going to read from the book again. You say, the only identity I had known my entire adult life was Samantha Wills, jewellery designer. Most people had stopped calling me Samantha years ago. I was referred to as SW. I was the original (laughs) SW. Thank you. Trademark. Yeah. (laughs) Because the brand Samantha Wills was bigger than me as an individual and therefore it got that name, not me. You write, for so long my existence in the world had been inextricably intertwined entwined with the profile of the business if I did choose to close Samantha Wills the jewelry brand would I once again become Samantha Wills I thought wondering if a name could be returned to a person after such commercial use and who or what was Samantha Wills if she wasn't designing jewelry it's been a little while since you wrote that passage I'm wondering how you feel about that now and whether because of course you did close the business 
have do you feel like you've come back into your name did you decide that you were going to change your name (laughs) did you like how what's that journey been like for you coming back coming back to yourself it's a great question and I I think I think it's still in process to be honest I think you know it's while it's been two years since we closed we closed in January 2019 um some days it feels like it was a whole other lifetime ago and some days I wake up and I'm like oh have I designed that collection yet like I'm still in I've still got the jewelry brand so you know I've still got calluses on my hands from from making jewelry so it's 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 a part of me um I haven't escaped it nor do I want to but um you know I think that by every word that I wrote on the page in this book felt like something had lifted in 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 a really beautiful way and I I think you know even though they're my stories in ink on the book if you see yourself or any part of your experience on those pages then they're our stories so um I think that the more sharing I do the more I feel like I'm coming back into my body as Samantha Wills without the jewelry designer um label but yeah I think it, it, it it's a constant journey so um it's it's been an interesting one to say the least nice I loved in the book your constant references to the universe and the way that you seem to be in the right time at the right place or you seem to have done the right work I don't want to say just you were there at the right place and it just happened but there was there was a really beautiful balance of hard work and strength and courage um, and then the universe putting you in the right place at the right time to get the payoff from that hard work and courage and bravery and all of those great things. You talk about the closing of the business and that big decision in the book really beautifully um, and it and it wasn't just a really, you know, it wasn't a decision that you made lightly. You talk about having to take some time away and to, to absolutely kind of extract yourself from life and from the business, from the day-to-day to to try and come back to yourself and try and to hear yourself. In in fact, like really hear what your heart was trying to tell you in that moment. You write, I glanced up after I finished reading his email, a moment of sheer surrealness washed over me when I noticed where I was physically standing. And this is in reference to an email that Jeff had sent you, which the, the actual email the subject line was business at a crossroads and you've looked up and you found yourself standing at that crossroads. For those people who haven't read the book, I won't do it justice. Can you tell that story from your perspective? Yeah. So my business partner, Jeff, uh, we had been in business for 11 years and he was very much the business side. I was very much the creative side. And we would send each other observational emails once a quarter, which had nothing to do with the numbers or the PL. very much an observation of people, of energy, of um, you know, just just that connection to the business. And he knew that I was up. I'd gone up to this meditation retreat in upstate New York. And this is probably two years in after I first got an inkling that maybe my creativity or my creative desire for making jewellery was starting to, to flicker, um, you know, which is not an uncommon feeling. I think that creative block, which I thought it was at the time. Um, but, you know, in my thought process, I was like, oh, I just need to get my creativity back. Like I thought that was the answer to it. And so I'd gone up to this upstate retreat thing and Jeff had said, do you want me to send you my observational email? I know you're up there taking some time. And I was like, yeah, send it through. So I was checking my emails once a day and it's kind of at this beautiful, almost like it looked like the set of Dirty Dancing where they stay in those wooden cabins. Oh, love. 
Ashman's, is it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was like like that. So there's a dining hall. So I was walking back to my cabin from the dining hall, and my my I downloaded my emails, and Jeff had sent through the observational email saying, you know, the business is at a crossroads. And essentially, what the email was describing was like, hey, I know you're going through a rough time at the moment um, I just want to let you know whatever you decide whether you decide to move back to Australia and you know we'll we'll put the things around you in place here that you need whether you want to move the design team to New York to be closer to you kind of like supporting whatever I needed to do to get my creative jive back and so his email was titled business at a crossroads and then when I finished reading the email I looked up as you said and I was standing at a physical crossroads and I kind of looked back down at my phone I was like wow that's you know what a coincidence kind of thing and the road to my left was the main road around campus it was very there's a picture of this in the book it's a very um you know strong you know bitumen kind of tarred road so it's a very logical path to take to know where you're going around the campus the road to my right was not even a road at all it was a winding kind of footpath of bark chips that kind of wove through a, a veggie patch and a beautiful flower garden and I looked down at the email again and I just I felt I felt this voice and I say that word purposely because I didn't hear it it was a feeling and the voice said it's time to close and it was as clear and as calm and as soft as that and put my hand on my heart and I was like it's time to close and you know, 15 or at the time that was 14 and a half years into this business journey, which I had ever so modestly named the brand after myself. I was like, all right, well, this is my lot in life. I never thought that closing it was an option, especially not when it's in growth and profitable. Like there's no logic to that. And so I went back to my cabin and I was like, you know, there there was a series of events, which I talk about in the book, which I won't give away now, but like that really confirmed my decision, these kind of synchronicities that all presented themselves. And then I would wake up every morning for two weeks and I didn't tell a soul about my decision. And I put my hand on my heart every time I woke up and I asked, I pretended I'd already closed. And I asked myself, how do you feel about this? You don't have a company anymore. How does that feel? And I didn't ask myself what I thought about it, because if I had to put it through the thinking filter, there was no logic to what I was doing. But if I put it through the feeling filter, through the intuition filter, I was like, it, I just know it's the right decision and I can't explain it in words, but it was just a feeling. And that's kind of, that was how I came to, that was me starting to get back into my body. And I felt like I was hovering out of it for such a long time. Wow. And how do you feel now compared to that feeling? Are you much more in your body now? Definitely. I, I feel like creatively, um, I feel my, myself when I'm creative and when it when creativity is, is flowing. And I think at that time I was holding on so tightly to what I thought the outcome was meant to be, mm. being, no, you've got to make this jewellery brand X, Y, and Z, rather than thinking, hey, you can, you can honour the legacy of this and close and, and honour those 15 years and the people and the community around it. And I, I think that was the biggest lesson for me is like we hold on to this one outcome so often mm-hmm. and we hold on to it like white knuckle death grip. And if we can just release that that outcome or what we think the outcome, because we think we know so well, we think we, we know yes. everything and it's like, no, we, we don't. I'm like, if we can release that outcome and align what the whisper is inside, it might not be as clear as that voice because it's very unique. You know, I've never experienced that again but it's a feeling we know that we might not be able to explain inside and then things start to present themselves externally. So you might find yourself standing at a crossroads. You might meet, you know, the person that you that needs to give you the next lesson or the next part of the puzzle. And it doesn't always come in the form we think it's going to or we want it to. Yeah. It comes in the form that we need at that time and it might not make any sense. And I think, you know, you 
you spoke before about how I mentioned the universe and the kind of these synchronicities and this cosmic choreography. And, you know, I love that cosmic choreography. (laughs) Yes, you're speaking my language. (laughs) (laughs) And I think if we look back with hindsight, that's where we start to, you know, put the the stars together. Whereas, you know, when you're in it, you're just like, this is so frustrating and you're holding on so tight. Mm. So I really encourage people to kind of look back at situations that you now have hindsight on and, and, and see the cosmic choreography that was making its way to you the entire time. I think as business owners, we hold on not just to those big things, but to little things as well. Or even even I know on a daily basis, I get frustrated when the day, when I don't achieve in the day what I thought I was going to achieve in the day because I had this idea that I was holding on to that I was going to get X, Y, Z done today. And when it doesn't happen, I, you know, I get cranky. And that happens so many times in my business. I thought we were going to be at this point and we're not, or I thought we were going to have this by now and we don't. But that's a really beautiful learning in that so so many times there's been reason and rhyme behind why we weren't where I thought we were going to be or why the day didn't turn out the way that I thought. And it's a nice, I think, reminder, not just for myself, but for listeners out there who who didn't get out of the house at the time they wanted to get out of the house this morning or who, you know, haven't got done this week the things that they wanted to get done this week, that um, that it's all interconnected and that it might reveal itself later. And you might not ever know why. Like you might not know why you lost your keys that morning and were late for X, Y, and Z. But I was like, it literally could have saved your life. Like you don't, you have to give up the the need to know all the time because I think that's also an anxiety spiral where it's like, why did that happen? And we stew and we fester Mm -hmm. on it. And it's like, just let it go and, and focus on, Focus on the authenticity within yourself because I think to me that's manifesting. I think the word manifesting has been so overused and so bastardized um, over the last decade or so. But what it truly is is like when we're operating in that true authenticity of um, flow of ourselves, of our own framework, not living someone else's life or someone else's expectations. Mm-hmm. When we're living what is true to us, that is when we attract what is true to us. That is the whole concept of it. So if we're holding on to this outcome that was never meant for us in the first place, we're just going to keep attracting things that are never meant for us. So it's like going back to us and listening to that whisper in whatever form it takes. Mm. And that's when what is meant for us finds us at the time it's meant to. Love. I have to ask you the name dropping question because so so many people know you because the brand was so successful and part of that success was you um, getting your jewellery into the hands of people who had a big following or who were celebrities and some of that was you know cosmically choreographed as well in in that there were people you didn't know and then all of a sudden um, I think you tell the story of turning on the news one morning and somebody's wearing your jewellery or you open a magazine and there they are. Tell us all the juicy goss we want to know. Who wore your jewellery? When did they do it? What was the what was the moment where you were like, holy moly, this is a thing? And, of course, you know, who's your favourite? <laughs> um, it, it's still surreal to me. Um, it, it never lost its novelty to me. We had everyone from Pink, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Eva Mendez, J-Lo. Like it, it, it was just a huge time and it was kind of before Instagram really kicked in. It was kind of, you know, well, before it actually even existed. So in the late kind of 2007, 2008, 2009 was really you were seeing celebrities wearing um brands because they came out in the weekly magazines. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't they were, kind of weren't showing us what they're wearing every day. 
And to have a placement in there, you know, could change your entire business. We had Eva Mendez wear a ring that um, went, never left our bestsellers list for the 10 years it was in our business the day that she wore it. We did it in over 366 colorways. It was a big teardrop ring called the Bohemian Bardot. Um, and that changed the trajectory of my life and, you know, the, my career and everything. Um, I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, so having her wear it. Beyonce obviously was incredible. I would have loved to have Michelle Obama wear it. Uh, we didn't get that one. But, yeah, it was it, it was always so surreal. And a lot of the time, especially in the early days, like I knew I had handmade those pieces with my hands on my dining table and then to see them on, on these incredible women was um, just mind-blowing. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Michelle Obama would have been very cool, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm happy with Beyonce. Listen, it's Beyonce. I, and I sent Michelle Obama a book, so I'm hoping we're starting the next iteration of, of gifting now. So fingers oh, crossed. Outstanding. <laughs> if you require someone to facilitate the conversation between you and Michelle Obama. No, you're on top of my list. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have to talk about um, the part of the book that really, um, really, really spoke to me and and I know it will resonate with Miss Bossy Boots listeners because we talk about it so often as women, the juggling act, the balancing everything, the how do we get it all done? You know, mm. not a day goes by where somebody doesn't say to me, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it all. And I'm, I'm just, I, I'm constantly thinking, I'm not doing it <laughs> at all. I'm, I'm barely keeping my head above water. And I feel like we all have that feeling. Some days we've got it, some days we don't. And it's, and it, and it comes in and out as, as with, ebbs and flows Mm -hmm. but you you talk so beautifully in the book you say balance what is it anyway all I know for certain is that whoever it was that came up with the notion of work-life balance most definitely was not a creative entrepreneur the concept of balance goes against the very molecules that are in the DNA makeup of entrepreneurialism it's as if our balance barometer organically skews to the right a forced magnetism to our creative pursuit People will tell us we work too much, but when we are creating, we don't see it as work at all. It's a much-needed process of the soul. It's not something we choose to do. It's simply something we must do. If balance was what we were seeking, we would have stayed with a nine-to-five job, the security of a safety net. So while I think of it as unrealistic and an unrealistic goalpost to try and match up balance and being an entrepreneur, I also know that it's going to take something truly significant to realign a chemistry that, in truth was probably never balanced from the start. Mm-hmm. It was probably never balanced from the start. Mm-hmm. What a permission slip that was for me oh. to read, oh. for this thing that I've been seeking and trying to attain for so long, this balance, this, uh, this allure of this concept of balance. For you to mm-hmm. write, you're probably never balanced from the start, so what you're trying to do is not, <laughs> is not real. And that creativity for me you know, dance has always been my passion and, and I started my own dance studio and, and again had the same struggle that you did in that, yes, I w- all I wanted to do was dance and teach young kids to dance. I didn't want to have to run the business and know the numbers and do the spreadsheet. Right. And so I've been searching for this thing that doesn't exist and you've given in that paragraph have given me permission to understand that as a creative person, I probably wasn't balanced to begin with and so searching for it is probably a bit of a waste of time and I should probably focus on the things that I'm good at and be okay right. with not ever getting there. 
So well, I think like it's someone else's balance we're searching for. Like we're probably searching for our balance our parents had or the balance our parents want us to have. Or, you know, I, I share the story where if someone, I think with entrepreneurialism, it's so intrinsically linked to traditional work because traditionally entrepreneurialism was, was this whole business world. Now it's a creative heart space, open creativity space. And so I think, you know, when people talk about work, it's like, oh, you know, it's this nine to five and traditional thought process around it. But if someone was like, hey, I want to be an Olympic swimmer, I want to go to the Olympics swimming, and they're getting up at 2, 33 o'clock in the morning and they're in the pool five times a day and they're, you know, they're not seeing their friends because they're training, people aren't like you're working too much, you're, mm-hmm. you're out of balance. They're like, good for you, you're chasing your dream, you're so dedicated. Like it's yeah. a different verbiage around it. So I think, you know, again, it goes back to our framework and what what is balance to you? It might not be what balance is to me. And, and you know, in truth, if I, if I was just creating nine to five every day, like someone else wants me to live my life in balance, I would be so unfulfilled, wildly unfulfilled. Like yeah. I, I work best at night. I, you know, I, I, sometimes I work through the night. Like that's when I, that's, that's my zone. So I think we need to shake off this concept of this traditional framework or taking on someone else's framework, because if we continue to chase it, it's, it's not ours. And yeah, like, like I said in the book, and like you just said, like it never existed from the first place. So we're constantly, you know, trying to fit into this hole that's never meant for us. So that's, it can be exhausting. Yeah. Oh, amen. <laughs> there's women, there's exhausted women listening to this podcast that just went, yes, <laughs> this is exhausting. Absolutely. Um, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit down and write the book, A, but B, to sit down and and talk with us and give this insight to our listeners. Uh, We have a beautifully dedicated community of of women in the Miss Bossy Boots and men, sorry, shouting out to the men. Alistair will be very cross if I didn't didn't mention that as well. Um, But I I really appreciate, I know you're incredibly busy and you're – the things that you're doing now are really exciting to watch from from afar. Talk to us about what is exciting you now. I know you have a passion for connection and, and creativity and you mentioned the course that you're doing as well as I know that you're speaking all around the country and, and presenting for some incredible um, entrepreneur in, in, in some incredible entrepreneurial spaces. Talk to us about what's what's going on now. Yeah, so if the book is kind of the handing over of, of the story and, you know, it, as you said, it's called Of Golden Dust, but the original working title was Public Brand, Private Life. And what I really wanted to do was parallel the two of those, but then also the human element that connects it in between. So I think that's the thing that so often when we look at Instagram and we see these business milestones or we might hear of some stories of the biggest business mistakes, but I was like, hey, there's a human element behind all of this. So that's that's the story in the book and I loved writing it I love that she's out in the world now and that's that's kind of my mission now is to share more vulnerably um so if that's the story the Samantha Wills Foundation is the tangible so it's it's we're about to release a masterclass which is kind of a handing over of absolutely everything I know about how to build a brand as a creative entrepreneur so I'm handing all that over handing over a lot of documents from our business um, and yeah, as you said, I'm doing a lot of speaking around the place and, and kind of sharing those stories in person. Uh, but definitely the Samantha Wills Foundation is is my next big focus and, and helping other entrepreneurs on their journey from, from my experience. I love that. The success you have had has been incredible. I know your parents are incredibly supportive back here in Port Macquarie and you get to see them quite often. We caught up um, for a coffee after we spoke at the International Women's 
day and you told me a great story about the first day that you got into the New York Times (laughs) and your dad's reaction. Can you, uh, just to close, can you share that fabulous story with our listeners? So my parents, God bless them, have been so supportive. Um, You know, I was living over in New York, as I mentioned, for the last 10 years and it's just a world away, right? Like it's, it's New York, as you know, you've spent time, it's, it's a whole other world away. And my parents have just kept me so grounded through the entire process and probably none more so than my father. So we had a piece in 2011 in the New York Times, which um, was huge. Like it, it broke out the internet, it broke our internet, our website crashed because of it. we sold out of all the things, the phone was ringing off the hook and they'd actually named us as a breakout star. So it was a half a, half a page placement in the New York Times. So I'm obviously over the moon and I call my dad and I'm like, dad, you'll never guess what's happened today. I said, we, we got named as a breakout star in the, by the New York Times. The New York Times, Dad. New York Times. And my dad's like, oh, well, that's great, Possum, but you were on page three of the Port Macquarie News today. Page three. We didn't even know about it. Your mother, she was down at the cafe and she ran into Rosalind. Rosalind actually told her that you're in page three. And I'm like, Dad, like, who's, who's <laughs> Rosalind? Like, I, I was like, what, Dad, what are you talking about? I was like, Dad, we're in the New York Times. He's like, well, that's great, Possum, but we don't get that paper here. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So my parents, I think, truly think are more proud of me when I get a placement in the Port Macquarie News. Actually, I know they are. They're much more proud of me when I get a placement in the Port Macquarie News than New York Times. So <laughs> it's very humbling. It is. Global, global international stardom <laughs> doesn't compare to page three. Doesn't. So yeah. But no, my dad my dad has been so supportive and still to this day, I think they've still got page three pinned up on the on the fridge with the good magnet. So with the good magnet. A good magnet. Yeah. <laughs> Samantha Wills, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on Miss Bossy Boots. If you haven't already got a copy of the book, you really need to. It's Samantha Wills of Gold and Dust. I see people posting it on their Insta stories all day, every day, and, and gushing about how incredible it is. And you're sharing that on your Instagram. If you don't follow Samantha on Instagram, please do. She's at Samantha Wills. And I see them gushing and I think get with the program guys I read that months ago are you just are you just discovering it because for me I feel like because I spoke about the book for the I think the four weeks after I read it to every person I ran into on the street on the phone and I just feel like everyone in the world's read it already and then I see your insta story and I'm like who are these people come on so if there's any Miss Bossy Boots listeners out there who haven't got a copy of the book yet and haven't read the book please do and then please post your comments and thoughts on your insta story and tag Samantha so that she can share it and then I can see it and go who are these people It's full circle. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and best of luck with all of the incredible endeavours that you have coming. I look forward to reading the the next book. Thank you so much and thank you for the work you do in facilitating these conversations. It's so needed and it's so important and like I said at the start, like it's these conversations that make people feel less isolated. So thank you. It's such a treat to be a guest. You've been listening to another Morgan Media production. 